A reading from the book of Genesis. God put Abraham to the test. He called to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son Isaac, your only one whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. There you shall offer him up as a holocaust on a height that I will point out to you. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. Then he reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the Lord's messenger called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he answered. Do not lay your hand on the boy, said the messenger. Do not do the least thing to him. I know now how devoted you are to God, since you did not withhold from me your own beloved son. So Abraham looked about. He spied a ram caught by its horns in the thicket. So he went and took the ram and offered it as a holocaust in place of his son. Again, the Lord's messenger called to Abraham from heaven and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you acted as you did in not withholding from me your beloved son, I will bless you abundantly and make your descendants as countless as the stars of the sky and the sands of the seashore. Your descendants shall take possession of the gates of their enemies, and in your descendants all the nations of the earth shall find blessing. All this because you obeyed my command.
A reading from the letter of St. Paul to the Romans. Brothers and sisters, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but handed him over for, all, for us all, how will he also not give us everything along with him? Who will bring a charge against God's chosen ones? It is God who acquits us. Who will condemn? Christ Jesus, it, it is who died, or rather was raised, who also is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became dazzling white, such as no fuller on earth could bleach them. <clears throat> then Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were conversing with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus in reply, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He hardly knew what to say, they were so terrified. Then a cloud came, casting a shadow over them. From the cloud came a voice. This is my beloved son, listen to him. Suddenly, looking around, they, saw, they no longer saw anyone but Jesus alone with them. As they were coming down from the mountain, he charged them not to relate what they had seen to anyone, except when the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead meant. 
During this season of Lent, as the church prepares to enter into the celebration of the central mystery of our faith, the Paschal mystery, the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we reflect upon certain events in the scriptures that culminate in this central mystery. Today we hear the account from Genesis of God's call for Abraham to offer his son Isaac in sacrifice on Mount Moriah. We also hear the accounts of the transfiguration of Jesus upon Mount Tabor. And a common theme that links these two accounts is faith in God's word. Faith in God's word. The word faith is so widely misunderstood nowadays that many people get it wrong. When most people talk about faith, they treat it as if they're talking about simple belief in the existence of something invisible, such as believing in Santa Claus or believing in the tooth fairy. And yet faith means so much more than simply believing that an invisible being like God exists. Faith means more than merely believing that God's word is true. Even Satan believes that God's word is true. Faith necessarily implies another word that has lost its popularity, especially over the last several years. And that word is obedience. Faith entails not just believing in the word of God, but submitting to it and carrying it out. The Catechism of the Catholic Church addresses this inseparable connection between faith and obedience. In paragraph 144, it says, to obey, from the Latin ob adire, to hear or to listen to, to obey in faith is to submit freely to the word that has been heard, because its truth is guaranteed by God who is truth itself. Abraham is the model of such obedience offered us by sacred scripture. The Virgin Mary is its most perfect embodiment. And the prophet Samuel tells us in chapter 15 of the first book of Samuel that the Lord takes greater delight in obedience to his word than he does to sacrifice. We could be offering all sorts of penances in the world, all the penances in the world, but if we are disobedient to the word of God, then we're wasting our time. If faith is obedience to the word of God, then it follows that disobedience is faithlessness. The scriptures speak many times of how the people of Israel lost faith when they disobeyed God. 
This does not mean that they stopped believing in his, in his existence. They still believed in his existence. But it means that they stopped listening to his word. And they stopped obeying him. And so they lost faith. And through obedience, Abraham demonstrates his extraordinary faith in God multiple times throughout the book of Genesis. He listens to God's promise that God would make him the father of many nations. And he believes God on his word. He takes God on his word. God calls him to leave his father's house and his land behind for another land that God promises to him. And he obeys. As difficult as that might be to leave your father behind and your homeland behind, he followed God's word and he was obedient. Abraham had not seen this promised land with his own eyes. He didn't even know it existed. But he followed God's word. He obeyed. He moved forward simply by faith in God's word. We walk by faith, not by sight. And Abraham's faith is tested multiple times to see if he would continue to remain faithful to the word of God, even in the midst of trials. He is told that he and his wife Sarah will have a son, an heir, even though Sarah is beyond the age for childbearing. It is through Abraham's son Isaac that God will fulfill his promise of making Abraham the father of many nations. When Abraham finally has his son Isaac, after so many years of waiting, he is commanded to do the unthinkable. God puts him to the test by calling on him to offer his only beloved son, Isaac, the one whom he loves, in sacrifice. Now put yourself in Abraham's shoes. If you were to receive a command like this, would you carry it out with your own son? Now, some of us might be inclined to say no, but the answer in faith ought to be yes. Even if God were to command something as difficult as sacrificing one's only son, we would have to obey in good faith. Now, the good news is, of course, that God does not actually will that anyone put their children to death. And in fact, the practicing of offering one's children in sacrifice is condemned time and time again throughout the scriptures. But God is testing the faith of Abraham to see if he will follow God's commands no matter how difficult or troubling they might be. This is in correction of the disobedience of Adam and Eve. They showed faithlessness by their fall in the Garden of Eden. And so now the history of salvation has been this restoration of trust in God's word and in our fidelity to God's word because we were unfaithful in the beginning. <clears throat> and the letter to the Hebrews explains how great Abraham's faith was. His faith was so strong that Hebrews tells us 
he considered that God was able to raise men even from the dead. In other words, Abraham believed that even though he is being told to sacrifice his son Isaac, God would somehow still fulfill his promise of granting him descendants through Isaac, meaning that Isaac would somehow be restored to life. That's remarkable faith. And so the notion of the resurrection is present in germ form in the faith of Abraham. As we know, Abraham is spared from offering his son Isaac at the last minute. God has better plans. God plans to offer his own beloved son instead. And it's interesting to note that the mountain upon which Abraham is to sacrifice Isaac is the same mountain where Solomon constructs the temple for offering sacrifices. In the gospel, the theme of faith is present once again in the account of the transfiguration. Peter had just made his profession of faith in Jesus as the Christ. And then in the next section of the gospel, Jesus predicts his own suffering, death, and resurrection, and Peter rejects this and rebukes him. The disciples are naturally shaken by the thought of Jesus coming, suffering, and death. They don't understand. And as a way of confirming their faith, confirming them in their faith, Jesus takes three witnesses, Peter, James, and John, up a mountain and reveals his glory to them. He is transfigured before them. And the voice of the Father is heard. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. In other words, even though Jesus has made a prediction that is very hard for the apostles to accept, they are simply to believe in his word, just as Abraham believed the word of God. Jesus' suffering and death are not merely accidental, but voluntary. His life is not being taken from him, but rather Jesus lays down his own life willingly. And so it follows that if they are to believe Jesus' prediction of his passion and death, that they ought to believe the prediction of his resurrection. But of course, we see at the end of the gospel reading that they still didn't understand what rising from the dead meant. Understandably, they'd never seen anyone rise from the dead before. So it would make sense, but it was a matter of belief that it would happen. And so we find in Jesus the fulfillment of the sacrifice of an only begotten son. Instead of the sacrifice of Isaac, the son of Abraham, God sacrifices his own son, Jesus. The disciples are called upon to believe in the word of God and to obey it. And while Abraham and the apostles were faithful men, they certainly were not perfect, especially not like Our Lady. 
They all made their fair share of mistakes, and they all committed their own sins. Yet they never lost faith in God's word, and they strove to obey it faithfully. And as a result of their faith, they have received the reward promised to them. And this same call to faith is extended to each and every one of us to believe in God's word and to obey it, to take God at his word. And since God has proven himself faithful to us time and time again, there is no reason for us to withhold our faith and our trust in him. No reason. As St. Paul says in the letter to the Romans today, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but handed him over for us all, how will he not also give us everything else along with him? And these are very good rhetorical questions. It makes no sense that God would send his only begotten son to suffer and die for us and then fail to fulfill his promise of a resurrection to everlasting life. We are called to imitate the simple faith and trust of Abraham and the apostles. Our faith is not simply a matter of believing in God's word, but of obeying it that necessarily follows from listening to the word of God. If we don't obey it, then we're wasting our time. We obey by believing in divine revelation through scripture and tradition, by following the commandments, by loving God and neighbor, and by obeying the magisterium of the church, which is the, the pope and the bishops united to him. And the season of Lent is an opportunity to evaluate our faith, our own faith, to detach ourselves through fasting from anything sinful that might be hindering us from obeying, and then to prayerfully strive to give a more generous response and obedience to the word of God.